0: Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, September 9th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me again today. Welcome back to the program, Andrew.
1: Hey there, Chris.
0: Your PW colleague, Rachel Deal, has reported on the book business for many years, and her latest feature considers the daily grind of life in the industry. In particular, how junior staff are managing with low pay, long hours, and an increasingly corporate culture. The situation has led many to ask, is the publishing industry broken
1: Yeah, the article is really sort of a fascinating window into the publishing world by my colleague, Rachel Deal. And it looks into the state of the publishing business, which, as you note, is well known for uh, its daily grind, the low pay, the long hours. And, you know, she does ask the question, is the publishing industry broken? And the answer, I think, is, you know, probably not, in my opinion, at least not any more broken than, you know, the rest of our economy is in terms of you know, the sort of growing inequity between labor and corporate power. But I do think Rachel's piece points out that the industry is certainly in a new place and in a new moment and facing some new realities that I absolutely uh, believe requires a, a rethinking of how the publishing industry operates.
0: Small paychecks and big workloads aren't the only concerns expressed, though.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of people will read the article and think that, you know, the agitation among the younger ranks in publishing is generational and cultural. You know, uh, that Gen Z and millennials are bringing a new perspective to some sort of age-old publishing practices. And, you know, they're just not going to take it anymore, right? And to some extent, I think that is part of the story here. But I don't think it is the story because, you know, generational change is a constant, right? And I don't think today's publishing leaders – uh, are any more flummoxed by the kids working for them than they were in the 60s and 70s with civil rights and flower power in Vietnam. and Vietnam. And I bring this all up because I think, you know, Rachel's article points out that you cannot dismiss the growing dissatisfaction and concerns of today's young publishing workforce as a sort of, you know, these kids today routine. And I say this as someone who, you know, Made fourteen thousand dollars a year when I started as an editorial assistant, and it took me a decade to get to thirty thousand. And I was promoted twice along the way. But you know, here's the thing: this story sort of prompts, I think, a lot of previous generations of publishing workers, including me, to compare their lot to today. And I'm sort of here to say that you know you really can't. You just simply can't. There's this point in the article where one executive is at a big house sort of cautioned against viewing the past through these sort of rose-tinted classes. You know, we always heard that the past was more fun, this source told Rachel. But the past was also home to sexism and racism and alcoholism and low pay – And poor HR administration and allowed abusive bosses to flourish. And I think that is a solid point, right? It would seem to me that this political moment we're in, this cultural moment, the internet, uh, and this post-COVID moment, when people are starting to return to offices, I think that we should not want to return to the same world We shuddered two years ago. I think Rachel's article really points out that we can do better, and it's time to really think about how and to invest in that. And you know, anyway, Rachel's piece is called, Is the Publishing Industry Broken? It's a real thought-provoking article, and please do check it out.
0: This marks our first show in September, Andrew, and publishing can now see the final quarter of the year on the horizon. A good moment then to take stock of sales so far in 2022.
1: Yes. And the good news is that the MPD book scan numbers came in for August and they were flat against 2021, which is amazing because, you know, altogether now, 2021 was a monster year for the industry. We've said it over and over on this program and for book sales to match that performance in a year with so many challenges from supply chain issues to printing issues and inflation on the consumer side. It's just a remarkable performance, and it suggests to me that the industry is actually going to consolidate a lot of the gains from the COVID years more, in fact, than I'd expected. Now, this week, book sales were down a bit, and for the year, MPD BookScan sales stats show the industry is down about 5%. And I think the AAP stats, their half-year stats, came out last month. I think they show the industry flat at the midway point. So, again, compared to a Stellar 21, that's just excellent. And compared to where the market was pre-COVID, that's really, really amazing. You know, it's it's significantly up from where we were in 2019 before all this COVID stuff began. Meanwhile, also on the PW you can check out some of the individual earnings from publishers. And I think you'll note that you know the most notable one is there's a steep decline for Penguin Random House's earnings compared to last year. But Simon & Schuster, which would possibly be part of Penguin Random House if a court allows that merger to happen, actually reported a really strong second quarter. And HarperCollins closed its fiscal year on June 30th up 10 percent. So, you know, nine months in, I think the industry has really fared much better in terms of sales than anyone really could have expected. And the good news is, is that the publishers I've spoken to say they're expecting a good holiday season and a good fourth quarter as well. So good news there.
0: In the lawsuit against the Internet Archive over its program to scan and lend library books, reply briefs were filed this week for summary judgment. Tell us where things stand in court.
1: Yeah, so two really interesting filings in the case, Uh, this case with four major publishers further detailing their claims that the Internet Archive's long-running program uh, to scan and lend physical library books is blatant copyright infringement that, according to these filings, ignores established law and undisputed facts. But in a reply filing of their own lawyers for the Internet Archive insist the program is legal and they accuse the publishers of improperly conflating the market for licensed ebook lending with the Internet Archive's efforts to facilitate, you know, traditional library lending through the scanning of books the libraries already own. Now these briefs come after the parties filed dueling motions for summary judgment on July 7th and more than 2 years After these four publishers, which are Hachette, HarperCollins, Wiley, and Penguin Random House, organized, of course, by the Association of American Publishers, first filed this copyright infringement suit in New York, and they alleged that the Internet Archive's controversial program to scan and lend books is based on this untested legal theory known as controlled digital lending, and that it's, in fact, nothing more than massive piracy. Now. I always find these reply filings to be the most illuminating in any case because each side has not only seen, has its own argument, but has also seen the other's argument as well. So I really did get a good sense from these briefs of where the case is going and what's going to be in front of the court. And I'll tell you, these filings did not disappoint. So let's start with the publishers,
0: Andrew. What's in their brief?
1: Sure. So in in their filing, which was a 41-page filing, an unusually long filing uh, for a response motion, uh, lawyers for the publishers go straight at the Internet Archive's claims that its scanning and lending of physical library library books is merely an extension of traditional library lending. Uh, they contend that this argument completely ignores established law. Most recently, a high-profile decision in Capital Records versus Redigi, in which the federal courts really forcefully rejected this upstart tech company that. Saw sought to expand the doctrine of first sale, also known as exhaustion, to create this resale market for digital music files. Now, the publishers say the idea that scanning and lending physical library books, the idea that this is just like traditional library lending is, and I'll quote them here, a study in blind denial that ignores law and specifically this Radigi decision in which the Second Circuit you know, specifically ruled on three points that are kind of key to the Internet Archive's defense, And crucially, held that Redigi's action in that case were unlawful, even though it used technology to avoid increasing the number of music files in circulation. And that's important because that's basically what the whole basis of CDL is based on, the central principle of sort of a one-to-one, own-to-loan basis uh, for lending these scans. As a reminder, under CDL, the Internet Archive and other libraries scan books and they lend the digital scans in lieu of the physical books under rules that mimic traditional library lending, right? Only one person can borrow a scan at a time. The scans are DRM protected. And the corresponding print book that the scan is derived from is taken out of circulation to maintain the sort of one-to-one, own-to-loan basis. In other words, uh, the scan and the print book cannot circulate at the same time. Only one of them can circulate. And you know this is, I think, really the most compelling argument presented in the publisher's brief and, and what I think probably wins the case for the publishers. But that's not all the publishers argue, right? They also argue that CDL is not only a fatally flawed invented legal theory, but the Internet Archive cannot even ensure the enforcement of these CDL rules on a day-to-day basis and of course the publishers take apart the internet archive's fair use argument there's absolutely nothing transformative the publishers argue about just repackaging and republishing the full text of publishers print books in unauthorized digital formats and then disseminating these unauthorized ebooks worldwide the publishers go on to state that you know they've already lost out in millions of dollars of lost license fees there is a very robust market for digital library lending and that these losses would surely grow if the Internet Archive is allowed to expand its operation, and indeed, if other similar operations, other libraries emboldened by the court sprout up. Ultimately, the publishers argue that the Internet Archive's case amounts to a policy argument about digital library lending, but that it doesn't accord with copyright law. And they argue that you know, any questions or conflict over digital library lending actually belongs with Congress and not in the courts. And I also think that's a very strong argument, too.
0: Okay, then, and so how do the Internet Archive defend their actions? So,
1: the Internet Archive lawyers basically characterize the publisher's case as an attack on the fundamental work of libraries. And among the points they make is that the publishers are conflating licensed ebook access with library lending. But they're not the same things, uh, Internet Archive lawyers insist. The markets are different. And also, IA lawyers say that their program differs from the Redigi case in some crucial ways. For one, Redigi was a commercial resale business. It was about the resale of digital files. In contrast, uh, lawyers for the Internet Archive say that this is about expanding accessibility to library books in an efficient manner. It's about utility. Uh, They say that this case is about making scans of Books that libraries legally own and are allowed to end available to their patrons. Remember, these are scans of specific books, you know, the actual books that are on library shelves somewhere. And when someone checks out the scan, in theory, the print book is supposed to stay put and vice versa. And you know, and it's interesting because in the Google case, the court held that scanning entire books, you know, was legal if it was done in accordance with copyright law. Well, Internet Archive old lawyers say lending is legal. Library book lending is legal. So, what's the difference? They say if that book on a library shelf is delivered by mail or by bookmobile or by the internet, you know, it wouldn't be illegal for a patron to even call a library and have a librarian read the book to them over the phone. It would just be, you know, stupidly inefficient. So this case comes down to the efficiency access of library resources and the scan which is controlled is just, you know, part of the efficiency here. And they go on to explain it this way. You know, the publishers are arguing that the Internet Archive harms the market or value for their books because the Internet Archive does not pay the license fee to a service like Overdrive to lend that book. But the customary price payable to a publisher to lend a book is zero, the Internet Archive lawyers argue. Thus, the economic harm from digital lending of print library books is exactly the same whether you lend the actual physical book or whether you lend the scan of the book. But since the scan and the print book are controlled, you know what's the difference, right? If a patron accesses the actual book or accesses the scan, there's just really no difference. And what I find fascinating about this argument is that you know, it takes on this concept that publishers have pushed from the beginning of library book lending, and that's that friction in physical book lending is this well considered feature rather than a bug in the reading ecosystem. The, the fact that you have to go to a library and pick up the book and return it is, you know, something that libraries or publishers depend on. But copyright law lawyers for the Internet Archive argue does not grant publishers the right to limit libraries to, quote, inefficient lending methods in hopes those inefficiencies will lead frustrated library patrons to buy their own copies. And I think this is a pretty key point. You know, the license to access market for books is an option for libraries. But in filing this suit, the publishers sort of want it to be the only option, the Internet Archive says. And that's just not right. I think that's key to the IA's fair use argument. I say the publishers can show no evidence of any impact from the lending of these scans of library books. The publishers say they're losing a license fee, but the product offered by OverDrive is a service that is optional and sort of a different product. It's rented access uh, compared to these – you know, of real e-books, we should say, compared to these crappy scans of print books. Now, first read here. It's a compelling argument from the Internet Archive. However, the big question is still whether there is a legal basis in copyright law to scan all of these books for the purposes of reading. Remember, it was legal in the Google case because the scans were for robots to create an index. This use is for humans to read. And while the Internet Archive does address why they think this is a fair use, well, it's a huge question. And I'll say this, too. As compelling as the Internet Archive argument is about the ability of libraries to own and lend content, and as much as may, I fundamentally agree with that argument personally, I also agree with the publishers that this is an argument that sure does sound like it's a policy argument and it belongs with Congress. Uh, and I can certainly see the court reaching that conclusion. Anyway, the case is certainly leveled up with the filing of these briefs. There's another round of briefs, the replies to these replies that's due on October 7th, and a hearing will take place after that. So more to come. Stay tuned.
0: Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My
1: pleasure, as always.
0: Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, fake research papers, often associated with fake authorship, threaten to overwhelm the editorial processes of scholarly journals. No matter what the discipline, fake papers are damaging to the trust that researchers and other readers have in what they read. Joris van Rossum is STM's Director of Research Integrity, which is organizing a major initiative to combat the problem of paper mills. This is a challenge for the entire scholarly community. What we really want to do is ensure that we uh, tackle this problem at the root. So let's say the worst solution is retractions, right? That's really what you want to prevent. It's very cumbersome and often it already leads to damage. Uh, People uh, reading those papers or building on research that is simply false. Screening them at submission is very important. Closing down paper mills coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC.